tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. <laughs> Here we are again. Once again, they're really great readings, but nah, I say that all the time. Let's pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit. They shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right. Open the big book on the coffee table. Well, we have Isaiah, the 45th chapter. And again, you may notice, if you look at the the uh, U.S. Catholic Conference of Catholic Bishops website and go to the daily readings and you scroll down in big bold print Wednesday of the third week of Advent then lectionary 189 that's the number of the reading not the page but the the reading in the lectionary and then you go in more bold print reading right across that line you will see what looks like a safe cracking code IS45 colon 6C dash 8 that's If you click on that, you will get the whole chapter, which I think is a wonderful thing to do. So it's not the Da Vinci Code. Um, yes. <laughs> the voice might say, oh, it's not the Da Vinci Code. No, it's not. So a oh, little larky voice in my head. Moving along. <laughs> the, where were we? Oh, yes. Um, the reason we do that is not to hide anything. You, In fact, is that's why it's on the USCCB site. Uh, you can go to it, and this is a good thing. But uh, um, I, I think that this is a very, very, uh, I really love this chapter. It's got some, some great quotes, and I'm just clicking one that I wanted to look at that I forgot to, to put in, but I will get it. Uh, oh, good grief. What have I done? Oh, no, that's right. Oh, okay. Okay, click, click, click. All right, well, let's go back to the reading. Okay. Now, moving along. Um, Okay, go back to the top and go, oh dear, oh dear, oh here we go, once again, oh that's not going to work, what did I do, I've lost something, you know I'm on a different computer than the one I usually use, ah there the little arrow is, oh dear. Yeah, I found it. I'm the Lord. Okay, enough enough of the music. Uh, I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light and I create the darkness. I make well-being and create woe. This is interesting. 
let's look at that in Hebrew and see what, what he's saying. Uh, I create light and I create darkness. I make peace, shalom, and I create, this is really, really odd, ra, which means, well, evil. God creates evil? Oh, that doesn't fit in with my theology. I don't know if it fits in with yours. It doesn't fit in with mine. But that's what the text says. Why would God create darkness and evil? Well, I would say that he doesn't actually create evil, but he allows it. Um, but that said, that's kind of a pious dodge, because if God is God... Nothing touches us except from the hand of a father who we believe loves who we believe loves us. This is a very challenging reading. Why would he do that? Well, you've heard the saying, God may hurt you, but he will never harm you. When I was a kid, I they I was very sick. I literally had to be carried around. This is when I was six or seven, and they never figured out what was wrong with me. Some dear nuns came and prayed for me, and I was healed. So I'm it may have been miraculous, but they never figured out what was wrong with me. But I would have to go for a weekly blood test. And I would sit, being a terrified little child of five or six or seven, whatever I was, I would sit on my mother's lap. And the doctor would take out this syringe, which looked to me like something the size of a turkey baster. And he would suck the... In fact, is the very last test I had after I had been healed... Um, he missed the vein in the in the right arm or the left arm, whichever arm he was using, and the needle just gurgled. And I looked at him and I said, I think you've taken all the blood out of that arm. And he said, yes, I guess so, and did the other arm. But it was really frightening for a little kid, as, as you would assume. Well, should I have hated my mother for bringing me to the doctor? I mean, this in my little eyes was evil. <laughs> this doctor with a little doctor's mustache and a huge needle coming at me. Well, no, it was for my good. You see, you can't choose the light unless there's the possibility of choosing the dark. You cannot choose the good unless there's the possibility of choosing evil. We live in a world that is dominated by half-hour sitcoms, and nothing is evil, everything is good. Everything's resolved in a half an hour with a laugh track. But that's not the way the Lord does things. Uh, <clears throat> so I make well-being and create woe. They translate it woe, but the word is ra in, evil, which mean, or in Hebrew, which means evil. And he creates shalom. Shalom isn't just peace. Shalom is, is um, it's well-being. You must have, I've told you this joke 20 times at least, that uh, and Mr. Goldstein is in the hospital and, and uh, the nurse is fluffing the pillow and she says, Mr. Goldstein, are you comfortable? He says, I make a good living. That's what shalom means. It's well. Things are well with me. Uh, I have all that I need spiritually and, and even materially. So shalom is a very, in, in, in Hebrew, it's a very concrete concept. It isn't just peace. You know, no, it's, I'm, I make a comfortable living. Spiritually, we think of more than materially. But it includes that. So I create well-being and I create evil. I create peace and I create evil. Wow. Let justice descend, O heaven, like dew from above, like gentle rain. Let the skies drop down. This is a beautiful hymn in Latin, Rorate Celi de Super. And uh, um, we don't think of the dew, but 
it was rather important in a desert climate. Uh, it was a great source of water. And when things were humid enough for the dew to settle, the desert blossomed. I don't know if you've ever seen a desert blossoming, but it is a gorgeous thing to see all these little flowers that was, they get the right combination of, of water and soil and, and sun overnight. Suddenly there's a carpet of flowers where yesterday there was a rocky, sandy desert. So uh, let justice spring up that, that, that something is barren until there's justice. So uh, uh, let's see here. The designer and maker of the earth established it, not creating it to be a waste, but designing it to be lived in. You know, the universe in all of its splendor is like a great Rube Goldberg for the creating of saints. I don't know if you younger people know what a Rube Goldberg is, but you see like that game mousetrap where you press the button and the thing goes up and touches the armature, which moves over, which then catches the mouse. That's a Rube Goldberg. He was a comedian who drew these very funny cartoons. They're called Rube Goldbergs. The universe is a great Rube Goldberg for the creating of saints. Uh, and and uh, that's what it's there for. So um, one more thing about this reading that I think is extremely significant for us Christians. You will hear people say that um, Jesus, uh, the, Jesus in the New Testament really never says that Jesus is God. Yes, it does. Uh, um, right here, the Lord is saying, by myself I swear... Uh, uh, uttering my just decree in my unalterable world. To me, every knee shall bend, every tongue shall swear, saying only in the Lord. Well, look at Philippians, the second chapter, the 10th verse. Uh, we read, uh, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all of the names. What name is above all of the names? Y-H-W-H, -H, the, the sacred name of God. That at the name of Jesus, remember Yahshua, Yah is the nickname for God. Yahshua means Y-H-W-H, the Lord saves. Now, I, I, have, I have mentioned to you before that when a Greek in the, saw, when a Greek-speaking Jew saw the word Lord, unless the context proved otherwise, he saw that as God, Y-H-W-H. A devout Jew will not say, will not pronounce Y-H-W-H, which is why I avoid uh, saying it. Uh, Pope Benedict said in scholarship you can use it. Uh, you can't use it liturgically. Um, or in church music. I don't know that my program <laughs> rises to the level of scholarship, so I say YHWH as often well, as don't I can. Sell short. The, <laughs> oh, the voice in my head is saying, don't sell yourself short. Why? Other people will do it for me. Never mind. Let's go back to the reading. I'm just being, I'm bantering with the voice in my head. <laughs> Everyone does. All right. Um, the, uh, so, so when a Jew is praying, when he sees YHWH in the text, he will say Adonai, which means Lord. If he's not praying, he won't even say Adonai. He'll say Hashem or Shmaim, uh, uh, the name or heaven. Uh, um, so uh, um, when a Greek-speaking Jew saw the idea, saw Lord, he heard, well, I'll say the word Yahweh. So that at the name, and so, as I said, Yah is the short form. Alleluia means praise Yahweh. Um, there we go. Uh, that at the name of Yahshua, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus, Yahshua, is the Messiah. The Messiah is 
God, is Lord, is Yahweh, to the glory of God the Father. This is a statement about the divinity of Christ in Hebrews 2.10, and we see that as it's referred to uh, in uh, Isaiah 45.23, by myself I have sworn, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, no, no, not 4.23, where is it? Oh, dear, where did I, I put it? I just saw, oh, in the text. Let me go back to the text. Uh, by myself I swear, uttering my just decree, my unaltered word, to me every knee shall bend, every tongue shall swear, saying only in the Lord. Then St. Paul paraphrased the letter of the Philippians, every knee shall bend, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, so I think that is a really interesting thing. Let us move to the gospel quickly while we have time. And uh, Luke 7, the 18th chapter or 18th verse and, and following. <clears throat> At that time, John, now he was in jail. John was in prison awaiting death. He knew he, was, he knew he was toast. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Well, didn't John, I mean, is this just mythology that Jesus was baptized by John? Didn't John know this? And I, I, I used to say um, that I thought, well, when you're facing death and you have, you have decided that your cousin, who is a construction worker, is is the Messiah. You really want to be reassured. But one of the fathers of the church, I think St. Augustine, has a much better explanation than I do, believe it or not. St. Augustine is, well, smarter than I am. Well, are you the one who is to come? Or should, he summoned two of his disciples, sent them to look to, sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Uh, why would he do this? He wanted them to see it. He and Jesus said, uh, 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 "Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind regain their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news proclaimed to them, and blesses the one who takes no offense at me." These are messianic expectations that we read in the prophets. So he's saying to them. I'm not going to tell you, well, Jesus didn't say he was the Messiah. He didn't say he was God. No, everybody everybody was the Messiah. Everybody, the Messiahs were popping up all the time. And people would run home and get their, their sword, kill a Roman soldier. The Romans uh, would take revenge and the streets would run with blood. <clears throat> uh, and, and then the so-called Messiah would have his be crucified or killed, which Jesus was too. But um, uh, Jesus... Uh, was saying, it's easy to say I'm the Messiah. It's easy to say I'm the Son of God. But what do you see? And he, well, you see the blind regaining their sight, the lame walking, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news. I guess he is the Messiah. So I, I much prefer what St. Augustine thought about it, that, um, yeah, yeah, he's the Messiah, and he showed that he's Messiah. So there you go. Well, all right. I think, is there anything else I want to kibitz about that? Um, let me see. Let's look for another. Um, no, nah, that'll do. Let's go to a break, and I'll come back with letters. Uh, and, of course, <laughs> mass hysteria. The 
Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. listen to the song i like it people say oh we love your music yeah the producer picks it but he's got good taste all right let's go to mass hysteria dogs and cats living together mass hysteria i never heard that song at mass so i don't know if that counts but that's all right paul and mary were at mass so i figured oh, that, okay paul, you know. paul it's religious it's right. yeah <laughs> well let me let me uh move on having insulted uh uh the prayers of the faithful yesterday. I, I, I'll say it again. Why do they call them prayers of the faithful? You get them from a book. They're written by committee. And they're five little sermons about that we would be more open to the poor and that we would share from our rich resources. The nations of the world. Oh, give me a break. This is sermon number one. How many more? Um, <laughs> you know, one of my favorite prayers is, Oh, Lord, you who know all things, we won't bother you with the details. Amen. You may think that's funny, but in a way, it's very sincere. I mean, long, verbose prayers. I remember hearing the story of a uh, uh, a, a great convocation in Boston in the 19th century, and the Reverend Dr. Yada Yada delivered the oration, and the, the press said that what he his prayer was among the finest prayers ever offered to a Boston audience. Not that's prayers of the faithful, that's yesterday. Today I want to badmouth funerals. If you're a Catholic, well, you know, funerals are really more for the living than for the... Not if you're a Catholic, they're not. The funeral mass is said for the repose of the soul of the deceased. And since I really believe in purgatory and think it's one of the neatest doctrines in the Catholic faith, because it means that after death, we do not cease to grow, but we stand before the God who is love, and we, we, uh, uh, we, we become, standing before the God who is love, everything in us that isn't love is burned away. So, uh, by God's light and love. So, you know, we stand with the dead uh, uh, we st- well with the, with the person who's at the judgment seat of God, uh, providing uh, God has His mercy. But what we do now at funerals is we canonize people. I remember I will never forget a, a, a funeral eulogy. The you know the after the after dinner roast. That's what it is. You know that somebody gets up and tells funny stories about Uncle Leon. Uh, who was a total reprobate and never darkened the door of the church. But we know he's in heaven because they. I literally heard someone say, oh, yeah, Uncle Uncle, Uncle Dudley, we really love to party, and I'm sure that he's in heaven now having a wonderful party. Uh, I'm not so sure. <laughs> I, I have come back from that brink, and I tend not to canonize people who are, who, who I, who I'm, whose funeral mass I'm offering. Um <clears throat> And the next thing I will never forget, I did the funeral of a real saint. I mean, I think this is somebody who I think I would canonize. He uh, just was instrumental in the uh, in the uh, um, financing of our our soup kitchen and food pantry back at St. Thomas. He was just a saint. 
And uh, if you got within 20 feet of him, he was going to rope you in to write a check and then come volunteer at the soup kitchen. He's an amazing man. Well, um, the eulogies, they decided they would have every grandchild share a eulogy. The eulogies were longer than the actual funeral mass. And, of course, they were after communion. And you had all these kids come and say, I will never see Pop-Pop again. I'm so sad. You know, <laughs> you have the after-dinner roast or the after-dinner wine, <laughs> W-H-I-N-E. And uh, um, all, the, all the preaching of the gospel that you've tried to do to this congregation and the, trying to reassure them with the faith is completely undone. <laughs> the so-called eulogy. What I did, and this is a suggestion for for um, my fellow clergy persons, if there are two or three of them listening, if they got to have the eulogy, and it is allowed, uh, a brief a brief testimonial to their faith is what's allowed, not to say that they were the life of the party and danced about with lampshades on their heads, so they're doing that in heaven. That's not what it's about. It's, it's, it's supposed to be a testimony to their faith. That never happens. I always had them before Mass. I would have people sit and listen to the eulogy about little Nelly never seeing Pop-Pop again. And uh, then you knew what damage control you had to do in the sermon and to what, what part of the gospel to emphasize to give them both a sense of repentance and a sense of hope. Then after the eulogy, you greet the body and go on with the Mass. I really firmly believe that you should not... Uh, I'll never forget. Oh, I, I don't want to go there. They might be listening. <laughs> but there was a, a song that was sung at, at a funeral. Um, this was about, oh, 20 years ago, which was, um, it was a kind of vaudeville song from the 1890s, which had the name of the woman in it. No, not Lydia. The voice manager said, Lydia. No, not the Groucho Marx song. That would be even way too far for me. But when I heard this song... I th well, I'll say it, Margie. Uh, you are my inspiration, Marge. I thought, never. I'm. This cures me. I'm not. It's got to be a hymn, if anything. Uh, and if they didn't pick music, like, oh, we're playing the funeral hymn. I did it my way. Yes, this song about how to practice for burning in hell. But I, I digress. I digress. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. After yesterday saying you, you shouldn't say that. But, um, well, that really is a hell, too. I've met people who've been there and back. It's not pleasant. Um, the uh, uh, What was I ranting and raving about? Yeah, so the eulogy before Mass, I think if they are actively faithful and genuine believers— a brief, a brief testimony to their faith before Mass is fine. But this after, the after-dinner roast, where everybody sits down after communion, either laughs or cries, save it for the wake, save it for the funeral banquet. Uh, but uh, if you want to say something in church, I think before Mass is a lot smarter. Uh, then Father's got a chance to preach the gospel uh, and to... And to um, um, bring them the message of salvation. All right, that said, let's go to letters. If I can find them, where they are, there they are. This one is from Dan. Um, well, last week, I think at some time, somebody asked about, many are called, but few are chosen. Um, I, I think I was right about that, actually. Uh, someone called in, or wrote, I think they called in and said, uh, 
you know, with the workers in the vineyard, why does Jesus say many are called but few are chosen? I don't think he says it in that. You know, they were wondering why he welcomes everyone and then kicks everyone out but a few. That many are called but few are chosen is in the context of the the wedding feast, that the guy comes in who doesn't have uh, the appropriate garment. Many are called but few are chosen. And the point I was trying to make, and I, I think I was correct in my I'll have to look more. Sometimes uh, we, we do tend that. Well, I heard it somewhere in the Bible. You know, the Bible says uh, God helps those who help themselves. No, it doesn't. Andrew Carnegie said that. But, um, uh, you know, many are called, but only those who respond are chosen. In other words, that wedding garment thing, it isn't all just uh, grace. You know, I, I, I this saved by grace alone. Yeah, you're saved by grace alone. But... When God gives you a grace, he expects you to act on it. You know, uh, uh, oh dear. Oh, I might as well tell the story. Um, Imagine I am walking through the forest and I stumble into a pool of quicksand and I'm sinking fast. And someone comes through the underbrush and they have the express intention of pulling me out of the quicksand and I shout, I'm saved. Well, technically speaking, I'm not saved till I'm standing on the bank of the quicksand pool embracing my Savior. Uh, but I can say I'm saved in hope, which the gospel does, which the St. Paul does say in his letters. It was in hope we were saved or by hope that we were saved. Now, if the person I thought to be my rescuer um, um, came up to me, and stuck his hand out, and then when I reached my hand for his, and yoink, um, pulled it away. Uh, that's kind of the God of Calvin. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin, believed in double predestination. There were people who were supposed to suffer eternally. Uh, God created them to show His justice, and then those people God created to show His mercy, us, whichever us you prefer. Um, um, those are the ones He rescued purely on his own whim, had nothing to do with them. It's kind of more like this. I, I will never forget meeting a great uh, evangelical teacher. He was uh, head of an institute, which I will not name, a brilliant man and very, very much lionized. And, you know, I speak pretty good evangelicalese, and I, I was trying to schmooze this guy. He made me very nervous, and so I was pulling out all of the 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 evangelical things I could to kind of impress the fellow. And I talked about having done altar calls, you know, where there's the prize thing where you come up to the altar and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And he said, well, at the Institute, we don't do altar calls very much. I said, oh, you don't? He said, no, because by coming up to the altar, you might have a false assurance of salvation. And I said, oh, you can have a false assurance of salvation? That means that you're not, you know, you, you sell your salvation isn't guaranteed. You can't really know that you're saved. I said, oh, yes, you can have absolute assurance of salvation. And I said, but it could be a false assurance of salvation. He said, yes. I said, but if it can be a false assurance of salvation, you can't be absolutely assured of your salvation. He said, oh, yes, you can be. And I said, but it could be a false assurance. He said, yes. I said, oh, I understand. And thank God I was a Catholic. I could go to confession, hear the words, I absolve you from your sins, and I could trust Jesus instead of, uh, instead of my own uh, uh, assurance of salvation. Well, that idea of, he, he said, we don't do altar calls because you might think that by the work of coming up to the altar, you're saved. They're that strict about 
if you think he was talking about Mother Teresa on this, he preceded me on a broadcast. Oh, a lovely woman, but if she thinks that uh, uh, her, her her good works are, are guaranteeing her salvation, she's going to hell. He kept sending Mother Teresa to hell. I thought, she's in hell, I'm in trouble. Well, um, lo and behold, um, um, he just explained to me that 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 you can't even hint that somehow you're involved with your own salvation or you're damned. I thought, that's a complicated religion you got there, fella. Well, let's get back to the quicksand pit. Okay, I'm sinking in the quicksand, and the guy comes up to save me. He says, take my hand. No, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be saved by grace. I will not save myself by the work of grabbing your hand. Well, guess what? You're going to (laughs) die. His hand to me is grace. My hand to him is faith. You see, we need to respond to God's gift. We need to wear the wedding garment. So this idea of many are called, but few are chosen, those are chosen who have responded to the grace of God. Our very ability to respond to his grace is grace. But when we say, nah, I'm not going to respond to this gift of God, well, guess what? We've rejected grace. We can resist grace. One of the Calvinist uh, principles is irresistible grace, that you can't resist the grace of God. God overpowers you. But that's clear, I think, in the scriptures that, no, it's not. You've got to say yes to the Lord. Well, that was a rather long explanation of everything. So let's move along to son of the letter. All right. Let me see. Um, Oh, here's one that I want to look at. This was uh, somebody uh, saying, Uh, We take seriously the obligation to attend Mass on Holy Days of Obligation. Due to our work schedules, we were not able to make a morning Mass as a family, but the children were unable to fast for an hour before communion. So we attended Mass as a family, but instructed the children not to receive communion. So now I'm thinking, was that valid? Did the children validly fulfill their... Yes! The obligation is to assist at at the sacrifice of the Mass, not to receive communion. And when I was a lad, people regularly went to Mass without receiving communion. Now, of course, if you don't receive Holy Communion, because the fast, people would say, well, I was unable to fast. Now, if you don't receive Holy Communion, the only reason is because you're an axe murderer or a drug dealer. Um, You know, and then the ushers, especially at funerals. I'm just venting my spleen today. You'll forgive me. Ushers come down and they lead people up to communion. In other words, if you don't go to communion, you got to fight with the usher who's pushing you out the pew and... If you are an usher, that has been forbidden officially and formally. You are not to go and usher people up to communion. They stand by pew one, pew two, pew three. That is wrong. You are forcing people to go to communion. If they are not in a state of grace or prepared spiritually to receive communion, or do not think they are prepared to receive communion, though they may be in a state of grace, it is to enter into communion with the Lord by receiving the Holy Eucharist has got to be absolutely free will. And the usher sort of nudging you up, uh, that's wrong. So if you are doing that in your parish, or if you are an under... I actually have gotten into fights with undertakers. I'm not that pleasant a person. Uh, There's one undertaker. I explained, don't do that. Well, he insisted on on doing it. And finally I said, don't do it. Uh, I went down to him. uh, Never mind. Why should I bother you with my problems? But yes, it was valid. In fact, it was noble. Uh, to to not receive communion out of obedience to to the minimal hour long fast that we have, that was more than valid. It was valid and uh, respectful of of 
that prohibition. All right. Um, I, one more letter. One more letter because, well, I got letters. <laughs> this one is, um, uh, I've asked Santa, this is from Ken in Minnesota. I've asked Santa to bring you an accordion for Christmas so you can do a polka Christmas mass. And then he says, where would we be without old curmudgeons like you? Well, <laughs> I don't know. You know, I always say accordions are lovely in beer halls. In Wisconsin, if you've got a keg of beer and an accordion, you've got a wedding reception. The fun kind. All right, moving along. Uh, let's see here. I've got, um, oh, goodness. Um, uh, oh, this is this is uh, this is kind of an interesting one. Have I got time to? Yeah, I'll do this one. You know, somebody called in. I think it was again last week. You know that they have somebody who's in a same-sex relationship, and they wonder if they should. I was kind of uh, strict about it. Um, and you know, I, I when I say take what I say with a grain of salt, I really mean it. You've got to make your own moral decisions. Um, and I can only tell you what I would do in this situation, unless it's clearly a matter of Catholic doctrine. You know. Like, should I murder this guy? No, you shouldn't. That's wrong. But uh, uh, then, you know, how do you handle these relationships? There's nothing in canon law about inviting um, your aunt or uncle who's in a weird situation to Christmas parties. There's nothing in canon law about that. You have to consider what's best for your family. Well, this was an interesting letter. Um, anyone is welcome at our holiday gatherings. However, I have relatives in same-sex relationship and a transgender relative. These relatives know that we teach our children that we believe the actions are wrong. That same-sex romantic relationships are not God's plan. That pretending to be another gender is not God's plan. I would suggest to your caller that he talk to his children in advance. Tell them that Uncle Harry is bringing a boyfriend. And tell them his thought, tell them your thoughts on the issue. Tell your children what we believe God's thoughts are on the matter. Go, God's laws are on the matter. Let me put it in there. That we treat everyone politely and the dignity of a beloved child as a, uh, and with the dignity of a beloved child of God without compromising the truth. Also, to make sure that this home looks like a Catholic home, crucifixes, pictures of the Holy Family, pictures of Our Lady of Guadalupe. I, to me, that's really important. When I was a kid, a room without a cross wasn't a room worth going into in my home. And we weren't that fanatical. I mean, we were devout, but... You know, my parents actually looked normal. Um, the Even a poster of the Ten Commandments. Uh, does he have a bookshelf? Catholic books, including those that deal with the theology of the body. Get to know Uncle Harry's boyfriend without compromising the truth. Yeah, give him a copy of <laughs> of something by St. John Paul the Great on, on uh, theology of the body. That would be fun. So, um yeah, uh, that's a, I think that, you know, if you have kids who can hear that, you know, that—, that, that um, you know, there are some kids who are just too young or, or, well, too fragile to hear that. So you judge in your own situation. But I think you have to definitely say that I think that's good advice. We love everybody and we respect them as children of God. But the truth is the truth. Right is right and wrong is wrong. So I thought that was, I thought that was a good letter worth reading. So, uh, But you got to make up your mind on that in the situation that is best for your family and your children. Because uh, as far as I know, there's no canonical rule about it. All right, we're going to go to a break. We'll come back with the word of the day. And uh, we'll take phone calls at 888-914-9149. 888-914-9149. Have a holly jolly Christmas. 
it's the best time of the year I don't know if there'll be snow But have a cup of cheer the Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com forester. When I'm worried and I can't sleep I count my blessings instead of sheep And I fall asleep my blessing. This this might be appropriate for Mass. It really is Philippians, the fourth chapter. Make your petitions known to God with thanksgiving. There you go. It's a beautiful song. Well, uh, word of the day, right? That's where we are now. Word of the day. Let's go to the word of the day. Uh, very interesting, not new, but interesting. When in the first reading, the Lord says, By myself, I Swear. Oh, 888-914-9149. Don't wait till the end to call. 888-914-9149. Uh, by myself, I swear. Let me see where I put that. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's it's the word. I'm always telling you that the word swear is Shabbat. Well, this is Shabbat. Uh, um, uh, let, me, let me look at it. Nishbati, which you get the sh and the ba. Though uh, he, I'm not going to give a lesson in Hebrew Hebrew orthography, but most Hebrew words, and now of course I will. Hebrew words, as Arabic words, they consist of three consonants, and you put different prefixes, suffixes, and vowels in to give them meaning. But Shabbat, this is the word for Sabbath for seven. Uh, and it's the same as the word to swear. Uh, by myself, I seven. That's what it literally means. By myself, I have sevened. Uh, that uh, righteousness has gone out of my mouth. That, that um, you know, when, when people say, well, the world wasn't created in seven days, science has proved. Yeah, science may have proved, but poetry still says it better. The most important thing about the seven days of creation, as I'm always telling you, is seven. The very fact of our existence is an oath of love from God to the universe and to us. I have created the world not as a wasteland, but to be dwelt in. The entire cosmos is a gift of love to humanity from God. Uh, so uh, this idea of Shabbat, the Nishabti, uh, or Nishbati, uh, I have sworn uh, to Sevenya and to swear, same thing. All right, well, let's go to phone calls. The phone is ringing. The phone is ringing. Who have we got on the phone? Read. Oh, that's right. Read. I'm looking at the screen. I got a screen in front of me that does this. Rita from Green Bay. What can I do for you, Rita? Well, I was listening to you. First of all, thank God for putting you on this earth because I think you are an awesome, awesome, not only teacher, but storyteller. Anyway, um, what I was going to ask is for 13 years, I helped yes. with um, two preps. And um, never, ever mentioned, you know, let people pick out the songs. Yeah. Tried to make sure that they were, you know, hymns, not mm -hmm. some song from God knows where. <laughs> um, anyway, for my funeral, I don't know if this is appropriate, but the song, I, I'm i just a very happy person. So what I would like for two, two of the songs at my funeral, one is Somebody's Knocking. And the other one is soon and very soon. And I don't soon. know if those are really appropriate. Somebody's knocking the Beatles song? 
No, 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 no. The one that says somebody's knocking on your oh, door. Oh, no, 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 no. No, those are those are fine. Those are, uh, and uh, soon and very soon. I love that song. Soon and very soon we are going to see the king. No, those are hymns. You know, and, you know, my, the thing, the schmear I'm trying to push is have songs for the introduction, or, you know, the procession in and the recessional out. Those would both be fine. They're both hymns. I thought for a minute you were talking about someone's knocking at the door of the Beatles song. I thought, oh, maybe God, not. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I didn't think so. But no, those are both those are both great. Those are both great. Um, yeah, soon and very soon. I, that would be a wonderful recessional. Uh, 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 hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see. I love that song. Well, yeah, I know. I don't think those are problematic. Uh, um, uh, 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 an entrance. Somebody's knocking at the door. That's a good entrance. And then a recessional. Soon and very soon. I think they would work. Why not? There you go. Because those are just two of my favorite songs. Well, and I just wanted to mention, we did go through the thing in our church that you were talking about, kind of, when things were done, when the eulogies were done after the homily or communion, Yeah. then we had one family come in, and um, they spent two hours on the eulogy, because 12 kids, everyone got up and spoke. Now, the accolades that this person got were well-deserved. They were a very, very good Catholic person, but the people in the pew, people were leaving because they had to go to work, <laughs> yes. and things were going on. Okay, yes. now that's over and done. Yep. It's done before. Good. Yes. Well, do it at the wake. Well, people don't come to the wake. They're, they don't have to stay at the wake. In other words, people like to do this in mass because it's a captive audience. Not anymore, it's not. Well, thanks for calling in. And I don't know about you, but I'm not planning on going to my funeral. So, nah. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> I'm not Irish. The Irish the Irish worry a lot about. <laughs> Never mind. Let's uh, who Let's go. Who have we got now? We got Lynn from Orange Park, Florida. What can I do for you, Lynn? Hi. I have a question. Um, maybe it's just because I'm a little older. I'm in my 60s, but I thought we were supposed to fast like 12 hours before church. When I was a child, it was from midnight, including water. Then it was three hours. And after the liturgical, I'm not going to say after the Vatican Council, because the liturgical reforms were not the Vatican Council reforms. It was liturgical movement. After the liturgical reforms, it was whittled down to one hour, which almost means you'd have to bring coffee and donuts with you to church to break the fast. Now, a morning mass that's half an hour, you, you throw the kids in the car with a breakfast roll to get them something in them before school. I could see how, you know, that situation was brought up. But no, it is one hour before the reception of communion at the moment. And I'm wondering if we shouldn't revisit that, um, uh, that we do so little preparation for communion. I think there's a lot of things. And I think as a, as a rule of thumb, uh, it might not be a bad idea to, to go back to some greater fasting. Um, but when I was a kid, it was not 12 hours. It was from midnight, all liquids, including water and all solids. Now, uh, water never breaks the fast. Uh, so there you go. That's as I understand it. I hope that helps a little, Lynn. Any other questions? 
No, it just sort of, you said one hour, it just sort of startled me. Yeah, yeah, one hour before the reception of communion. the old way. Yeah, well, it's probably been good for you. <laughs> one hour before the reception of communion, oh, yeah. not one hour before Mass. So, oh, things aren't like they used to be, but then again, they never were. So, well, thanks for calling in, Lynn. God bless, and thanks for listening. Let us go to Andrew from Fond du Lac. Are you with us, Andrew? Yes, I'd like to agree with you about funerals. Uh, when we, when I uh, lined up my father's funeral, uh, I insisted with the priest that he mentioned the purgatory and praying for people of all denominations after they die, how important mm-hmm. that was. Some of my relatives got very angry about that. No, uh, really? Everybody goes straight to heaven and all this type of thing. And uh, I guess I have a question. I'm in the Milwaukee Archdiocese. Um, it seems like a lot of wakes are held right in the church nowadays, which I really don't like because it just seems like there's a lot of storytelling and gabbing. And uh, what do you think? Uh, I hate to admit that I kind of agree with you, Andrew. But yeah, it's just you know it has become the custom because it actually saves money. You know that the funeral business is pricing itself out of existence. That's why there's so many cremations, and you know, and why they like to have the wake in the church. And um, it is, you know, the 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 general instruction of the Roman Missal, or as we like to call it in the business, the germ, clearly says before mass there's to be silence in church. And I think that includes mood music. I've been in church where there's electronic mood music being played. No, let there be silence. And people can quietly prepare uh, to greet the Lord in the Eucharist, uh, but yeah, it just it 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 becomes chaos in in church, and that's inappropriate. Uh, the Scripture says clearly, "Be still and know that I am the Lord." Um, but you know, uh, so many canoes are over so many waterfalls, as we say, uh, that that um, that has become so common. And uh, uh, but it's a matter of of money for so many people. Uh, so what I would say is if there's going to be a, a wake in church, uh, a viewing, as they now call it, a viewing before Mass, uh, the Blessed Sacrament should be removed and the sanctuary light extinguished, uh, though I think that that's inappropriate. Then the priest should come on side and ask for silence. We're going to restore the Blessed Sacrament to the tabernacle and spend a few quiet moments preparing for Mass. Um, that would be my suggestion, but it, it, uh, I don't think it's going to happen fast. And I agree with you about purgatory, Andrew. I think, and I say it all the time, purgatory is one of the most beautiful ideas in the Catholic canon, in the Catholic arsenal, shall we say. It means that, you know, we read St. John, uh, we are called his children, and so, and so now we are. But what we shall be has not yet come to light. But we know that we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I'm going to stand before the creator of the universe, who is love and light. And everything in me that isn't love and light is going to be burned away. And that means that after I die, if I die in a state of grace, I continue to grow. And that means that I am more capable of loving people and praying for them. You know, the, the person who's gone before us uh, uh, loves us more if they have died in a state of grace and stand before the God who is love. They love us more than they did a week ago, a month ago, a year ago. So, so purgatory is a beautiful idea. And uh, uh, and judgment is real. You know, I've, I'm always talking about people I know who have died and lived to tell about it. People... Uh, um, 
experience the pain they've caused. It's part of the purification of their souls and their growth in love. But the idea that we continue to grow even after we have left this world, to me, is one of the most beautiful ideas, and that I can stand with people in prayer. Uh, um, that when I pray, I, all these people I meet who died and live to tell about, they say, when you really pray, when you pray in the Spirit, when you pray sincerely, that that your very spirit stands in heaven. So you can stand with the people who've gone before you. And the, the veil that separates us from the eternal world, the real world, uh, is a very thin veil. And when we pray, and especially when we pray for those who've gone before us, um, that veil is, is, is in, a, in a certain sense, lifted. So, no, I agree with you. If purgatory is, is, is just a beautiful, beautiful idea, and if people understood it, they would be much more uh, interested in it, you know. And the people don't pray for the repose of souls. Uh, I wonder if it's not like a drought in purgatory. Uh, we need to pray uh, for, for those who've gone ahead of us. And I think you're right to pray for people of all nations and all ethnicities and all, all faiths, you know, that, uh, to pray for the repose. That's what we do with the rosary. Oh, my Jesus, forgive us our sins. Save us from the fires of hell. Lead all souls to heaven, especially those who have most need of your mercy. It doesn't say all Catholic, all Christian, all souls to heaven. Speaking of all souls to heaven, I, all souls should listen to the coming, the coming program, Drew, and especially the Divine Mercy Chaplet, which is very, very important and very efficacious as we as we think about these cheery things at Christmas time like death <laughs> <laughs>